attention? Uh, in particular, the attributes, our attributes for worship to God are all again in fear of the Lord. <coughs> I thought that was refreshing. Yeah. Well, that's good. Sounds like I should have been here. I did pray for you both Sundays. I always, uh, I always try to make a point. I think I'm always faithful at praying for you all while I'm gone, and praying for the person who's teaching. So last Sunday morning, while I was sitting in a worship service in a Lutheran church in Iowa, I was praying for you guys. So I was also listening to the service, but I was <coughs> praying for you guys. So okay, well let's. Uh, Let's pick it up then uh, in Genesis chapter 4. When we were together last, we finished uh, chapter 3 as much as we're going to finish it, I should say. As I promised you, when we started Genesis, we would be thorough but not exhaustive. and uh, So that's kind of what we're doing. But, but we looked at chapter 3. Uh, and the last time we were together, particularly we looked at uh, God's response after Adam and Eve's fall and how He confronted them, uh, Adam and Eve and the serpent and some of the things that transpired there. Uh, and today we want to go on into chapter 4 where we begin to look at the story of Cain and Abel and the descendants of Adam. <laughs> and uh, uh, But before we do, I don't know if this is asking too much to go back three weeks, <laughs> three Sundays, two Sundays back. Uh, to try and remember some of the things that we learned in Genesis chapter 3. Glance down through that passage. We looked at about the last half of the chapter the last time we were together and see if there's anything there that kind of triggers your mind. What were we we last talking about when we were together in in this passage? I know I'm asking a lot. You all have slept since then. At least some of you have. Everybody was pointing fingers and said she gave it to me. Yeah. yeah, everybody's kind of pointing fingers. They're, they're admitting that they did wrong, but they are uh, trying to kind of spread the blame around a little bit so they don't take the full brunt of God's displeasure. Of course, we never do that, do we? We never point a finger at others. The serpent didn't pass the buck. No, the serpent had nobody to pass the buck. Yeah, he was. Yeah, I think you're right, John. He did exactly what he wanted to do. Yeah. One of the things we talked about was the fact that God held each party responsible for their own part in their own sin and, addre- and addressed each one. Yeah, yeah. He did, and and he wasn't particularly swayed by their attempts to shift blame, was he? He just uh, he just let them take the blame. But he didn't dwell on it either. He didn't just keep leaving on the table. He was like, okay. This is it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Rick? That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, that comes up. Yeah, it's certainly important for half of the population, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. One of the things that intrigued me, I don't know that if you if you addressed this because I missed some of those lessons in verse 17, when uh, God is addressing Adam, He says, "Because you have listened to the voice of your wife," He doesn't say because you listened to what Satan said, mm-hmm. or because of 
serpent or whatever. Did you address that? Or, uh, uh, we did a little bit. Do you have something you want to add? No, I was oh. just very intrigued. Yeah. I don't know yeah. exactly what it is. Well, the thing we talked about, uh, we did talk specifically about the fact that Scripture says in Timothy uh, explicitly that Adam was not deceived, that Eve was. That didn't absolve her of her guilt, and we talked about that. But we talked about the fact that man was that that man was apparently that Adam was at this point more interested in pleasing his wife and satisfying his wife's uh, interests than he was in in obeying God, and and uh, so he walked into it basically with his eyes wide open. And so we talked about that. So, and the other thing we talked about, and and it's something I wanted to mention and explain that we didn't uh, get into last uh, last time I meant to, and I either overlooked it or we ran out of time or whatever. But we talked, uh, we talked some about the, the transition, the change that takes place in Adam's mind and in his heart as this idea of the grace of God begins to dawn on him. As the Lord is enumerating the curse on the serpent and then telling Eve what the consequences will be for her own sin, <clears throat> there's, a, there's this kind of subtext that's running underneath it, which is the subtext of grace. And we talked about that. That as he's... That he's talking as he's talking to the serpent, as he's pronouncing the curse upon the serpent, he refers to the seed of the woman, and and we talked all about that seed. That there was going to be the righteous seed, and there was going to be the unrighteous seed. There are these two lines of the two righteous, and the, two, the the righteous line and the unrighteous line, and that is uh, clearly stated uh, by the Lord when he's speaking uh, to the serpent. He refers to the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And you'll remember that we said uh, that the uh, that the, that these two lines actually both proceed from the woman. Okay, both the unrighteous line and the righteous line both proceed from the woman, but the unrighteous line is not attributed to the woman. The unrighteous line is attributed to the serpent. So he speaks of the serpent seed, uh, and we'll talk more about that in in much more detail today. And then he talks, of course, about the righteous seed. And our example, our illustration here of two. Lines coming from the same, the two physical lines coming from the same person, but one being attributed to God and one being attributed to Satan. The example, of course, is Abraham, where uh, the Lord speaks of some of Abraham, the Lord Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, speaking to the physical, some of the physical descendants of Abraham, and refers to them as being of their father, the devil. Okay, so that's an illustration that I cited. Uh, last week of this uh, of the unrighteous line, the seed of the serpent actually being the physical descendants of Eve uh, or of a person, but they are really attributed to Satan because they follow Satan, they believe they they uh, they follow his ways and they they listen to him and they obey him rather than obeying God, and so they are called the seed of the serpent. Okay, so we talked about that, <clears throat> but. The thing that's that's striking to us, uh, to me at least, and we talked about this last the last time we were together, is how Adam, as as this idea of as he's talking, as the Lord is talking to the serpent, Adam is hearing the Lord talk about the descendants of Eve, the seed of Eve, which is telling him what they're not dying, they're not dying and. They're going to have children, okay? And then he goes on specifically to give the promise of the singular seed, the one who was going to crush 
the serpent's head, not the serpent's seed, but the serpent himself who is going to crush it. And so then there's this promise that this adversary who has now brought such havoc in the, into their lives and into their world is going to ultimately be crushed. There's the promise of this, of this uh, ultimate seed. And so there's this, it begins to dawn on Adam that, that this woman who's standing next to him, to whom he was just a moment ago pointing the accusing finger, is his hope and salvation for him and for his descendants. And so, so the guy who's standing there a few moments ago pointing a finger and saying, the woman you gave me, she did this, she led me into this, is now calling her Eve, the mother of all living. And what we see is that, is that Eve's position in Adam's eyes have been, has been elevated. She has been, she's been re, re-elevated or re-lifted, if you will. Uh, is that a word? Anyway, she's lifted up again till once again Adam has this very high esteem and honor for her. Okay? Now, when we think about that, that may help to explain a, a, a passage in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy, and you're familiar with this passage, I'm sure you've probably read it and go, what in the world is he talking about there? But let's just flip over there because I think... Uh, uh, what's happened here with Adam helps to explain this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, <clears throat> when Paul is giving instructions on the church and uh, how, things are to be, uh, how things are to be done within the context of the church, uh, and I have to get to 1 Timothy. I'm in 2 Timothy, so excuse me a minute here. Uh, <clears throat> see, he says... Uh, uh, beginning in verse uh, 11, he says, now this is again in reference to the church, I want women, or a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam that was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But the woman will be preserved or saved, as some translations read, through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Okay? And we read that and we go, what in the world is he talking about that? Particularly if you read it in the King James where it says the woman is saved. Okay? But the idea there that's being conveyed is, is, is really the essence of what happens in Adam's experience there in the garden. Okay? Is, that, is that Paul has just stated that in the church... Women are not to teach or exercise authority over man. He gives two reasons. What are those reasons? Because we were taken from the bone of Adam and because we were Okay. Because because Adam was created first, so he has the he has the, the position of leadership in the relationship. And the second thing is because she was deceived. But then he goes on to say she's preserved. Now he's not he's not referring there to her salvation to her uh, salvation from sin. And the obvious uh, proof of that is the fact that he's contrasting the men and the women here. And clearly the man is not preserved because he has authority in the church. Man is not saved by having authority in the church. What he's speaking of here is the position of honor and the position of regard and respect. The woman's position of honor, a position of being... uh, uh, being a, a co-worker with the man, so to speak, is preserved through her bearing of children. That's exactly what happened with Adam in the garden. In the garden, Adam had this accusative 
uh, demeaning attitude towards his wife until this whole idea of God's grace and the righteous line becomes clear to him. And when he understands that through his wife, this righteous generation is going to be created and going to continue to exist and ultimately uh, that mankind will be saved through this righteous line, then suddenly he realizes how valuable and how precious this woman is to her. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in Timothy. He's saying that the woman's position in the church is a position of honor if she bears children and they continue in, in, uh, in uh, uh, how's he say it, if they continue in the faith and love and sanctity and self restraint The question is, who is the they they are referring to? Now, many commentators think that the they is referring to the woman. I would suggest to you that the they is referring to the children. If the children continue in the faith, that is, if they are, if the children are of the righteous line, okay? And the reason I say that is because the pronoun they is what? Singular or plural? Plural, okay? Woman in the passage is what? Singular. Children is what? Plural, okay? So it seems obvious to me that the idea is if the children continue in the faith, the woman's position of honor is, is preserved, okay? Well, I was speaking recently, uh, just in the last couple of weeks, I was speaking with a woman who the Lord has not led to be married. And she said, well, that's all well and good <laughs> for the married women who are having children, but what about us unmarried women or a woman who can't have children, who doesn't have children? Is her position preserved? Well, how would her position be reserved, preserved? She teaches the other children in the church and has a right to... If, if she carries on the ministry of raising up a righteous seed, whether it be children or, or, or uh, other women or whatever it be, if she plays a part in the, in, the, in the cultivation of the righteous seed, the righteous line, to the degree that she does that, her position of honor is maintained. The woman I was speaking to went, oh, well, that includes me then. <laughs> and she was encouraged by that. So I just wanted to share that with you that I think there's a correlation there between what happens here at the end of Genesis 3 and what Paul is talking about there in 1 Timothy. And I'm sure I've raised more questions than I answered, but that's okay. We'll let you wrestle with that later. Okay. Can I ask a question? On Genesis or 1 Timothy? Genesis. Okay. You, you um, talk about She gains honor. We, we gather that she gained that he that he his honor for her was restored in that he called her Eve. His when when he he's already named her. He named her woman initially. He now after hearing what God says names her the mother of all living. And so this so once again she's restored to this position of honor. She is not merely someone who is taken from man, but now he renames her not based on where she came from, but based on her destiny. And and that's uh, how commentators reach that conclusion. Okay. Well, we pick up then uh, the story in Genesis chapter 4 and we want to cover about the first half of the chapter. So let's read beginning in verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man with the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. 
Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me, or too great to bear, excuse me. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Okay, and we'll stop there. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the things that we want to get in the habit of doing as we're studying through Genesis and as we, as we experience or run into these various accounts and stories that we're going to run, to run into is to ask the question, why is the story here? Okay. Why is this story recorded? You know, There are obviously many things that happened in redemptive history that we don't read about in the Scripture. Okay. So why did the Holy Spirit deem it important to record this particular event for us of, uh, of Cain and Abel. And I think there are probably three primary reasons why this story is recorded for us. The first is that in Cain and Abel, we, we, see, we begin to see the origin of this whole theme that we're going to be looking at all the way through the book of Genesis and then co- continues on throughout Scripture, this idea of the righteous versus the unrighteous seed. Okay, so this becomes obvious to us right from the start. We have the righteous seed in Abel and we have the unrighteous seed in uh, Cain. And I'll explain why we think Cain was the unrighteous seed here in a minute. But one of the reasons is to show to us, to, to begin to demonstrate to us this concept or this idea that became clear in what God told the serpent. That there were going to be these two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and that they would be an enmity with one another. So one of the reasons for this particular story is to demonstrate these two, the beginning of these two lines. Okay. <clears throat> Obviously, tragically, something happens uh, right at the outset to the righteous seed, and, and we'll wrestle with that. Uh, <clears throat> the second reason is to begin to explain this whole idea of the enmity that exists between the unrighteous line and the righteous line. And it, and it unfolds immediately. Remember that Moses is writing this stuff and recording this all out in the wilderness and he's doing it in order to equip the children of Israel who have come out of, have come out of Egypt with all, the, with all the amalgamation of pagan worship and everything that they brought with them. And he's trying to give them some understanding 
of, of all, all of redemptive history up to this point, and he wants them to understand that there is a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous line and what that distinction is, and that will become more clear to us uh, today as we look at this. But the second thing he wants them to understand is that there always has been from the outset and always will be till the close of the book of Revelation, there always will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Okay, The seed of the woman being, uh, being, a, being a reference to uh, the righteous line or the righteous seed. Okay, And so what he's explaining to us right here at the outset is that, the, is that these two lines exist and that these two lines are at war with one another, have been at war with one another, and will continue to be at war with one another uh, on, uh, up until the end, until the consummation of all things. And the third reason, I think, for this lesson is that Cain is an example to us, and Scripture makes Cain an example to us. And uh, John uh, refers to him in his epistle. Jude refers to him in his epistle. And, and uh, so in Cain's behavior and in Cain's conduct, we see some things that we are to avoid. And so there are really three reasons, I think, for this story. And, and keep that in mind then as we look at the story, uh, as the story unfolds, to keep in mind what, why are we thinking about these things? Why are we talking about these things? Okay. Well, so we begin the story with Adam and Eve uh, having sexual relations with one another. And the result, of course, is that, uh, is that Eve conceives and gives birth to her firstborn child, who is, of course, Cain. It doesn't say she names him Cain, which is kind of interesting. <clears throat> we see that Adam named, uh, named the woman, <clears throat> first named her woman, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, and then named her Eve. And then, of course, throughout Scripture, oftentimes we read about when a child is born, about the parents, usually the father, naming the child. But it doesn't really say here that Cain was named Cain by his parents, nor that Abel was named Abel by his parents. And, uh, and I would suggest that possibly that wasn't their real name. That these may be names that were given uh, by, the, uh, by the author here, by Moses or by the original uh, person who uh, narrates this story to describe the destiny. The name Cain has the idea of possessions or the acquisition of possessions. And it may in some degree for, uh, foreshadow his character, what he's going to be like. Okay? And, uh, and the, second, uh, the second point is that Abel's name means a vapor or a breath. And so Abel's name may in some degree foreshadow uh, what the story and what's going to happen in his own life. So it's possible that the names we have here were not their original names. I don't know uh, whether they were or not, but they were possibly just names that are, that are given by the narrator or by Moses to help us understand the nature and the character and the lives of these two guys. But at any rate, the firstborn is named Cain, uh, as far as we're concerned, and the second is Abel. But what's interesting here is that when Cain is born, that Eve makes a statement. And you'll notice if you were watching or following in your Bibles as I read, that I read it differently than it probably reads in your Scripture or in your Bible. In your Bible, it probably says something, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Or uh, if you have the New International, it may say, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Actually, the, the translation man is more accurate than man-child. Okay? So, but what's interesting, if you'll notice in your, in your translation, if it has the phrase, with the help of the Lord, you'll notice that some of that is in italics. What does that mean? So it's implied by the text, okay. but not in the original. 
Okay? It's the translator's understanding of what he thinks the text is saying. Okay? So when you see something in italics in Scripture, it doesn't mean it's more important than the other passages. <laughs> we use italics for emphasis here, but in, but in your trans- Bible translations, the italics means that the words are really not there in the original tongue, but the translator thinks that this is possibly or probably what was intended in the text. Okay? So in reality, the text reads, I have gotten a man with the Lord. Okay. Now there, or uh, even possibly, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Okay. So there are three possible explanations for what Eve is saying here. Primary explanations. And the first is that she's saying, I've gotten a man, the Lord. Meaning that, that Eve thinks that in the birth of Cain, she's got this promised seed who is going to crush the serpent's head. Okay. Now, the main problem with that, with that interpretation uh, of the passage is that it's anachronistic. And by anachronistic, I mean that it's taking something out of time and placing out of some other time and placing it in this time. Okay? So, for example, uh, something would be anachronistic if you're watching a movie, say, that's about the 1800s or something, and, they, and in the movie they're talking about uh, President Barack Obama. That would be anachronistic, okay? Because obviously he was not president during that time. It would be out of time, okay? The idea that, the, that this promised seed was going to be actually the Lord, which we now know was the case, is anachronistic. Eve had no way to know that. In fact, that concept that the Messiah, the promised seed, was going to be the Lord God Himself, that idea and that awareness only comes many, many centuries, if not millennia, after this event. So it would be anachronistic to assume that Eve understood that the promised seed was going to be the Lord. Another problem with that is, as, as we'll see here in a minute, I keep telling you all these things we'll see in a minute. We'll see if we get to all these things. But, uh, but is it, it appears that even though they are out of the garden at this time, they still have the presence of the Lord. So, uh, and I'll show you why I believe that in, in a few minutes. But if that is the case, if they still have the presence of the Lord, then, it, then there would be no reason for, for Eve to think that, there's, that this promised seed is going to be now the Lord present with them because He's still present with them. Uh, so there would be no reason for her to assume that. So I don't think that what she's saying there is that the that the that this that she thinks that Cain is in fact uh, the uh, the Lord incarnate. Okay. Uh, the second possibility is the one that's trans- the way it's translated in your Bibles uh, most frequently, which is I have gotten a child or I've gotten a man child with the help of the Lord, and that's the way it's uh, commonly commonly translated. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, and, and that is, in fact, a, a, a legitimate, a very common understanding of what she's saying. It's in a fairly positive statement, but I do want you to notice where is the emphasis uh, in the passage, in her statement, if that's, in fact, what she's saying. Who gets most of the credit in this deal? She does. Okay. So, uh, even if it, it is a somewhat positive statement where she's crediting the Lord with giving her help, she's saying she's done this. She's gotten this. She's gotten this mansion. The other possibility is if we delete the italics, she's saying simply, I've gotten a man child equal to what God has done. It's possible that what she is saying is, look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. I've gotten a man child just like God did. Now, 
at first blush, that might seem to be a little critical, you know, a little negative on Eve. But in reality, if that's what she said, that's exactly the disposition she's already demonstrated in the garden. Is it not? Pardon? That's exactly what Satan told her. Satan, Satan tempted her to become like God. Okay, And this, in fact, becomes a theme that goes all the way through the book of Genesis. is this idea of man's autonomy and independence from God. So, uh, we have, for example, as I mentioned, the temptation in the, in, in, uh, in the garden. We have the Tower of Babel where man is attempting to assert his independence we got from God. We have Sarah's offer of Hagar to Abraham, which is an effort to achieve God's purposes and God's promises independent of God. And we have, of course, Jacob's many supplantings, the many things that Jacob does in his life where he tries to get around letting God do things his way and he tries to do things his own way. And, and of course, there are a number of other examples in Genesis we'll see as we go through. So it is quite possible, and I think personally probable, what Eve is thinking here is, look what I've got. Look what I've done. I've done what God did. Okay which may explain to some degree why Cain turned out the way he did. <laughs> okay. Uh, another thing that we'll, as we get into next week's lesson, you'll see the stark contrast between what she says here and what she says after the birth of Seth. And by the time of the birth of Seth, there is this sense, complete sense of this is all of God and none of me. And we'll see that when we get to the end of chapter 4. So, so I would suggest to you that very possibly what she's saying here is, look what I've done. I've done what God was able to do. I have gotten a man. Yes? When I read that, I guess I'm thinking that she should come through childbirth and thinking with the help of the Lord, you know, to me, I'm reading it, I guess I'll be wrong, but I was thinking well, I wouldn't say... Uh, I would not be emphatic to say you're reading it wrong. I would say if you read it that way, you're reading it the way the majority of translators read it. <laughs> so you're in good company. When women are going through childbirth, there is the time you think, I pray I survive it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you don't curse your husband because you want him to feel the pain. <laughs> 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 Share the <laughs> but there is, you know, you're just so joyful that even, I mean, I think every yeah. woman in her heart knows yeah. that she Yeah. Well, that's a good point, and, and, and that's a legitimate point. So, uh, and, and I, like I say, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that. I lean towards the explanation that I just gave. Uh, but uh, certainly that y- your perspective there is, is the majority opinion and may be the accurate one. So uh, let the Lord lead you on that as, as He does. Okay, well, so then she has Cain and she has Abel. She has two sons, okay. Cain being the oldest son. And we have here uh, at work uh, a, a principle uh, called uh, primogeniture, okay. Primogeniture is the principle... Uh, that the oldest son gets all the goodies. <laughs> okay. Now, actually, there's a reason for that. It wasn't injustice. Uh, in, in the tribal culture uh, that existed in the Old Testament and even in, into the New Testament, it was necessary for the oldest son to get, uh, to get the double portion of the inheritance because he was going to be financially responsible for the whole tribe. 
And so it was necessary that he have uh, uh, a great deal of the, of the resources of his father in order to be able to do that. Okay? But primogeniture just simply says that the firstborn has this, has this position of, of headship over the, over the tribe or over the clan as the case may be and that he gets, uh, uh, typically he got uh, uh, twice the inheritance or he got half of the inheritance of his father and the rest was divided among the rest of the, of rest of the sons. Okay? So, so I want you to notice here though, this is a cultural thing. This is the way the culture operated. But right off the bat, we see that this principle of primogeniture is turned on its head as it is several times, not always, but several times in the book of Genesis. For example, in the example of, of Jacob and Esau, uh, it's turned on its head. Okay? In that case, God intended for it to be turned on its head, but Jacob did it by the arm of the flesh rather than by waiting for God to do it. But we'll get to all that ultimately in the years ahead. Uh, but, uh, but at any rate, so Cain is the firstborn and then Abel is the secondborn. And they have two different occupations, which are what? Okay, a rancher and a farmer. Okay, uh, Abel is the rancher and Cain is the farmer. Okay, Cain tills the soil and and uh, and Abel is a keeper of the flocks. Okay, now remember that when he's keeping the flocks, for what purpose is he keeping the flocks? Why do they have flocks? What are they doing with them? Pardon? No, not yet. Uh, well, uh, he does, but. For clothes, yeah. That's, that's the only purpose we see. Uh, God does not permit the eating of the flesh of animals until after the flood. Okay, We see that with Noah that God institutes, uh, uh, institutes meat eating after the flood and we'll get to that story too eventually. But, but at this point, the purpose of the, the flocks is, is for clothing. God has shown them in the garden that the way for them to have clothing is not to go out and sow fig leaves, fig leaves together, but rather to kill an animal and, take, uh, and, and to take the hide. Okay. And at some point, and it's interesting to me that he first tells us about Cain. I, I get the idea that Cain did this first and uh, it may just be the way he recorded it. But Cain at some point brings an offering to the Lord. And what does he bring? Pardon? Okay, he brings the fruit of the ground. He brings the product of his labor, right? He brings the fruit of the ground, okay? And, uh, and then Abel also brings a sacrifice to the Lord. And what does he bring? Okay, he brings of his flocks. And specifically it mentions he brings the first lanes and he brings the fatted portion. Now that may mean he brings the fatted portions of the ones he offered or it may mean that he brought the fattest of the firstborn. So he selected from the firstborn and that from the firstborn he picked, he picked the fattest, he picked the best, okay? And he brought those to the Lord, okay? Now there are some things we need to understand about the nature of this offering. First of all, notice what it calls it. When Cain brings it, he calls it an offering and he uses a specific Hebrew term there. It's the identical term that he uses when he refers to Abel's offering. Okay, And it's a term which when we get to Leviticus, which is many hundreds or thousands of years later with the institution of the Levitical system, it's a term that is used exclusively in Leviticus. That means, in, I mean, in Leviticus it is used exclusively to refer to a bloodless offering. Okay, That's all it refers to. It never refers to a sacrifice. 
So, we need to understand that in what's being offered here in Genesis chapter 4 is not a sacrifice. It is an offering. Okay? There is nothing uh, expiratory about this offering. There's, it's, it's not, there's no expiation going on here. In other words, by expiation we mean the removal of or the forgiveness of or the cleansing of sin. Okay? These offerings are not made as an atonement for sin. There's no indication in the passage it was intended as an atonement for sin. Okay, This will be important to understand why God had favor on one offering and not on the other. Okay, They are not an expiation. They are not offered as a sacrifice for sins. They are simply a tribute of worship to God. That's all they are. Okay, When I say that's all they are, I don't mean that's unimportant, but I mean it's important that we make that distinction. Okay, They are a tribute paid to God much like a vassal kingdom would pay a tribute to a suzerain kingdom. Okay? You, had, you had big kingdoms in the world and they'd go around and they'd conquer the little kingdoms and they'd make them their, their servants. And then every, you know, every year or so, the vassal kingdom, the one that's been subjected, would have to pay a tribute to the suzerain kingdom, to the, to the big daddy of them all. Okay? And we have examples of that with Babylon and Assyria, etc., etc. Okay? They would pay a yearly tribute where they would give gold or animals or whatever. Uh, to the to the big daddy kingdom, okay? Well, this is the idea here that 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 uh, Cain and Abel are offering simply offering a tribute to God, a recognition to God of his of his power and his authority and his greatness and his goodness. It's just a tribute. It's a it's an act of worship, okay? That's what it is, and and that is important for us to understand. But what strikes our attention is that it says that Abel brought an offering. And what was God's response? He had regard for it, or he had favor on it. Okay. But regarding Cain's offering, what does it say? Excuse me. He did not look with favor on it. Okay. But I missed something when I said that. I said with Cain's offering, the Lord had regard. But he had regard for something before he had regard for his offering. And what was that? Abel. Notice that? It says, for Abel and for his offering, the Lord had regard. And for Cain and for his offering, the Lord did not have regard. Okay. So whatever it is that distinguishes God's response or, or, or differentiates God's response between these two situations... We must understand that the issue with God was first of all the man and second of all the offering. Okay? Now I'll probably rattle a few cages here, but but I'm going to suggest to you that God did not reject the offering of Cain because it was bloodless. There's nothing in the text to indicate that God rejected the offering of Cain because it was blood. Now, I know you may have heard that that's why he received Abel's sacrifice, but nowhere in Scripture does it tell us that's why he received Abel's sacrifice. And in fact, I'm, I've misused the term. I've used the term sacrifice. It wasn't a sacrifice. Remember, we've already established that. It was an offering. It was a tribute. There was, nothing, uh, there was, there was no expiation involved in this, in this offering. Okay? If there was no expiation in this offering then there's no reason to assume that it needed to be a blood offering. The second thing is, 
God has no problem with bloodless offerings. The book of Leviticus gives specific instructions when bloodless offerings are to be offered. Okay? So it, it is erroneous for us to read into this text here that the reason that God received the offering of Abel and rejected the offering of, of, of Cain was because Abel offered a blood offering, offering and, and Cain did not. That's not the problem. Okay? Now there are two possible... There are two uh, explanations for why God rejected the offering. One of them is possible and one of them is certain. So what I'm saying is the first one that I'm going to give to you may have been a factor or may not have been a factor. It depends on how you read the text. The other very clearly was the factor, was the determining factor. And, and that becomes clear later in Scripture and we'll talk about that. But you'll notice that with Cain, when it says he brought an offering, what does it say specifically in the text? What does it say? Okay, so he brought of the fruit of the ground. He just he brought some of the fruit of the ground that he had presumably grown. Okay, and he brings that to the Lord. What does it say specifically that Abel brought? Okay, the first lanes and the fat portion, or possibly the fattest of the first lanes. Okay, the best that he had. Okay, so he so the the so. Moses records for us, the Holy Spirit here records for us, specifically he makes a point that Abel's sacrifice was the best that he had. Now, he doesn't say that about Cain. Okay? And so, we could read into that, you know, some significance there. That Cain just simply brought what he had, uh, just what was available, but Abel made a point of bringing the best. Okay? Now, I don't know. Since, since that is to some degree an argument from silence... Uh, because Scripture doesn't explicitly say that he did not bring the best. Uh, you know, we may be a little bit on thin ice here, but, but there, is a, there is a possible suggestion here that one of the distinctions is that Abel brought the best, Cain simply brought what he had, okay? Or brought something. <clears throat> and it is quite possible that that would have played, if that was the case, if that's what happened, then certainly that would have been a factor in God's mind. God takes this whole thing about what we offer to Him very seriously. And God is not humored or pleased when we bring an offering to Him that is less than our best or something after the first. God wants the best of what we have and God wants the first. Because that tells him what we think about him. Okay? And he makes a point of that. He makes a point of it in Jeremiah. He makes a point of it in Malachi. Uh, uh, recently, uh, uh, Ryan was preaching out of Malachi, remember, in Sunday morning. He was preaching there in chapter 1. And, and, the, and the, the Jews there in Malachi, they were being rebuked by the Lord because they were, they were, they were bringing the blind and the lame. They were just bringing kind of the leftovers to God. And God says there in Malachi 1, He says, listen, would you give that to your governor? <laughs> you know, would the governor be satisfied with that? You know, it's kind of like paying taxes. You know, if, if we pay taxes the way we support God's work, you know, would, would the government be satisfied with that? If we just simply wrote a letter on April 15th to the governor, governor 
to the to the president and said, well, I'm sorry, but I just ran out of money and I didn't have any money this year to give you. Would our governor be happy with that? Obviously he would. That's the Lord's point. You don't treat your government that way. You don't treat your governor that way. You don't treat God that way. God wants the best and He wants the first. And that's what we offer. If in fact Cain fell short in that area, that would be one reason why his sacrifice was not accepted, but it doesn't explain why Cain was not accepted. And it was Cain who was not accepted first before his sacrifice was not accepted. Okay? Because God sees the heart. What is it that God saw in the heart of Abel that He did not see in the heart of Cain? Do we have any clue anywhere in Scripture? Obviously, the answer to that question is, yes, I'm asking where. (laughs) How about the great hall of fame of faith? Hebrews chapter 11. (laughs) Sure you were, Jim. Sure you were. Hebrews chapter 11. And after the Lord... after the Lord says uh, that we that by faith we know the worlds were framed and all that sort of thing, He begins the Hall of Fame of faith with whom? Abel, right off the bat. <laughs> okay, He begins with Abel and He says in verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Okay. What made Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's? Hmm? His faith. It was his faith. Abel's faith is the thing which made his sacrifice superior to Cain's, which means Cain offered a sacrifice without faith. And that's why Cain was not received and that's why his sacrifice was not received. Okay? It's imperative that we understand that. That it was not some technicality of how he offered his sacrifice. The primary reason why Cain was rejected was because he did not come to God by faith. He did not worship God in spirit and in truth. But Abel comes to God by faith and because he comes by faith, his sacrifice is received. God affirms both Abel and affirms his sacrifice and through faith, Abel still speaks to us even though by the hand of his brother Cain, he is murdered and he's in the ground and he's dead. His voice still speaks to us because of his faith. And so what we learn... Yes, Rick. Excuse me? Do you think this was a man-ordained or God-ordained? You mean, was it ordained by God or initiated by man? Is that what you're asking? Uh, I think it was man-initiated. I think the principle of offerings was understood by this point. But one of the things about offerings is they are typically free will offerings. So they are initiated by us as an expression of our gratitude to God or our worship or adoration of God. 
But clearly what has happened in Cain's case is it's become simply a rote thing to him. It's become to him just something he does out of his own good works. So that he has this expectation of God based upon how he has performed. And that becomes obvious in his response. Okay. Cain comes, or Abel comes, with no expectation other than the simple pleasure of worshiping and paying tribute to God. Okay. But Cain comes with expectations. How do I know Cain comes with expectations? Because of the way Cain responds. And this is the, this is the characteristic of works, right? This is the characteristics of a works mentality. Works mentality comes to God with expectations. I do this, you do that. Right? So when Cain comes and brings his offering to God, what is he expecting? He's expecting approval. He's expecting God to regard him and to regard his offering. Now, this is what we do when we get into a works mentality, which even we as children of grace can do at times, right? We get into a works mentality and we, we bring our offerings to God or we live our service for God, we serve God or whatever, and, and we expect God to say, thank you, I appreciate that. And if God doesn't say, thank you, I appreciate that, for some reason, what happens? We're offended. We're offended exactly what happened with Cain. When God did not regard his offering, what did he do? He was outraged. You see, when, when our offerings are our service for God, or what we think is our offerings are our service for God, are not regarded by God, we get outraged. The very suggestion... That, that I could do something for God or offer to God something and it would not be sufficient or appropriate in His eyes offends me. It makes me mad. That's the nature of the flesh. That's why when we as Christians say to other religions, well, I appreciate your devoutness and I appreciate your sincerity and I appreciate your passion... But all these things you do, your prayer wheels or your bowing to Mecca five times a day or your climbing a mountain on your hands and knees until your hands and knees are bloody, all of that devotion and all of that passion, God just disregards all that. And when I say that to another religion, what do they do? They're outraged. It's the response of the flesh. Now, it can happen to me. I can come in here to offer my service to God on Sunday morning, which for me involves teaching this class, and I can do it apart from faith. And if I do it apart from faith, and at some point, in some way, God makes it clear to me that He disregarded my offering of service to Him. Oh, who are, look what I did. I spent all this time and all this effort, and I went up there and, you know, and, and the class laughed at me and, and, and all this sort of stuff, and... Who are you to tell me you're not going to take my offering? But God only has one criteria. It has to be offered in faith. It's got to be offered in faith. And Cain is outraged. First at God. And then you'll see his anger turns to his brother. Okay? Well, 
So he's outraged. And he has all this anger. And God then steps in at this point to avert what is impending. That he clearly sees where Cain is headed. And so God steps in in his mercy and in his grace. He steps in to arrest this process that's going on in the heart of Cain. Because God sees where it's headed. And so God comes to Cain and he says, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but what? You must master it. So what God is saying is, look, Cain, I know what's going on here. But the reason reason your offering was rejected, you're angry because you think it was unjust, but the real issue is you are unrighteous. You are unrighteous. Now, we know several things about Cain, given the story here, and there are probably other things too we know we could maybe discover about him. But there are several things about Cain. One is very clear. He is a wicked man. Now, this is kind of paradoxical because we think, well, here he comes bringing this sacrifice to God, this offering, excuse me. So he brings an offering to God. Well, it's possible for wicked people to bring offerings to God. And Cain is a wicked man. How do we know he's a wicked man? Well, for one thing, he killed his brother. He's a wicked man. He's full of hatred. He's full of uncontrolled anger. We know he's obstinate. When he's confronted by God, he refuses to change. He refuses to repent. Later, when he's confronted by God over the murder of his brother, he lies to God. He's a deceiver. So he's deceiver, he's wicked, he's full of hatred, he's full of anger. He's a very wicked man. So that John says of him in the first epistle of 1 John, in 1 John 3, he says he was, catch this, of the devil. 1 John 3.15, I think it is. Of the devil. What does that sound like? Seed of the serpent. Cain is of the seed of the serpent. And so we begin to see now these two lines developing. The seed, yes, see, see. Why did God allow the seed of the serpent to continue? Why does Peter tell us he allows him to continue? Why does Peter say he allows it to continue? Why does God forestall judgment? It's his mercy, in order that many might be saved in order that there might be this great righteous line. But God is never going to interfere with man's choice to love Him. Uh, 12916 13916 okay yeah okay uh, your eyes have seen my unformed substance all your book they are written is that the verse
The number of our days was planned. The length of our life. Yeah. No, no, he does no. That's not what that verse is saying. The verse is saying that God knew the days that were knew the length of my life. He ordained the length. He ordained how long I would live. But God does not ordain my actions. God does not predetermine my actions. The Scripture is not deterministic. The Bible is not deterministic. It does not teach that all of man's actions are predetermined by God. Man makes choices. And then God holds man accountable for the choices he makes. Okay, so so God allows the unrighteous He allows the unrighteous line to continue because that is necessary in order to allow the righteous line to continue. And the fact is, as we see, since the determination of who is in the righteous line is by faith, it's possible. In fact, everyone who becomes a member of the righteous line starts out where in the unrighteous line. So we all start in the unrighteous line. I started in the unrighteous line. You started in the unrighteous line. Abraham started in the unrighteous line. We all start. Abel started in the unrighteous line. But we, but we are transferred from the unrighteous line, from the seed of the serpent, to the seed of the woman by what? By faith. Okay? And that's the point. Abel was received by faith. He was not received because he was just born better than Cain. He was received because he was received by faith. Well, we're out of time. So we'll pick this up next week and then we'll go on and see the conclusion of Cain's experience and then the advent of the, right, of the new righteous line that replaces Abel. Okay? Rich, one comment about that. Uh, I think that there have been times in my life where when I think and I think that tells me God has our day set, regardless of how Satan may try to kill us. 